This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Welcome to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Hi, I'm Jamie Busson. I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll discuss liquids versus powders or capsules as a preferred supplement with nutraceutical expert, Dr. Gordon Chang. We'll learn how to beat high food costs and still eat healthy with nutritionist Shauna Lindzen. We'll talk about current research into obesity with Dr. Sean Wharton, and we'll find out which cookbooks make the holiday gift guide with reviewer Naomi Bussin. Before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot of healthy headlines. A new study of mice out of the University of Texas suggests that a short-term exposure to high-fat diet may be linked to pain sensations even in the absence of a prior injury or pre-existing condition, like obesity or diabetes. The study found that a high-fat diet induced hyperalgesic priming, a neurological change that represents transition from acute to chronic pain, and allodynia, which is pain resulting from stimuli that do not normally provoke pain. Eating a high-fat diet, even for a short period of time, is enough. A diet similar to what almost all of us in North America eat at some point. Not feeling the holiday cheer this year? The gap between expectations and reality can leave people feeling lonely. But older people in particular may have certain relationship expectations that have gone overlooked in efforts to measure and fight loneliness, experts at Duke University say. In every relationship, we expect certain basics. We all want people in our lives who we can ask for help, friends we can call on when we need them, someone to talk to, people who get us, someone we can trust, companions with whom we can share fun experiences. But the research team's theory, called the Social Relationship Expectations Framework, suggests that older people may have certain relationship expectations that have gone overlooked. A research team led by the University of Houston has developed a vaccine targeting the dangerous synthetic opioid fentanyl that could block its ability to enter the brain thus eliminating the drug's high. The breakthrough discovery could have major implications for the North American opioid epidemic by becoming a relapse prevention agent for people trying to quit using opioids. While research reveals opioid use disorder, OUD, is treatable, an estimated 80% of those dependent on the drug suffer a relapse. That was your tonic quick shot. I'll be joined by Dr. Gordon Chang in a moment. But first, a little bit of business. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Omega Alpha's products are created by their scientific team, headed by their owner, operator, and CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. 
Dr. Chang holds a PhD in physiology and biomedical engineering from the University of Toronto. He also has two years postdoctoral experience in clinical biochemistry, looking at free radicals and antioxidants. He's published over 20 peer-reviewed articles and conference proceedings, and he's a valued member of this show. Welcome back, Gordon. How are you? Great, Jamie. Thanks for having me on board again. So today we're going to talk about mushrooms, but we're going to talk about it from a, like a different perspective. We're going to talk about, you know, the way that you can take mushrooms and, and formulations. And this is your wheelhouse, man. It's time to hit a home run. You ready? Definitely. Now, one of the things I was going to point out about mushrooms, there's a huge interest in mushrooms these days. Medicinal yeah. mushrooms, psychedelic mushrooms, right? Mushrooms yeah. for food. So there's a lot of interest in mushrooms nowadays. There's also interest in how do you grow them, where do you grow them, and there's a lot of misinformation, for want of a better way of saying it, about mushrooms out there. Yeah, let's start with the process. And I get to say a word I've never said before, but it's titillating. What do you like about liquid decoctations and capsules? Okay, liquid decoction. Mushrooms, are, they're not, they're one of these things that is halfway between an animal and halfway between a, a herb or a plant. Yeah. So they, they don't fit into either category. So they have their own little category. So if you talk to a botanist, a mushroom is a mushroom is a mushroom. They're not plant and they're not animal, okay? Yep. However, there are certain similarities. Mushrooms, for example, will grow on a substrate. One of the things about the substrates is that everybody asks, well, how do you grow your mushrooms? Where do you grow your mushrooms? Now, mushrooms are not grown in soil. Right. Okay? They grow on decaying matter. So, you know, and the mushrooms that people forage for, you know, they have their own unique flavor, right? So they slice it up, they cook it. The medicinal aspects of mushrooms, however, even if you cook it and you slice it, you will not be able to extract out the medicinal aspects of the mushrooms. And there's only so much mushrooms you can slice up and eat. Right. Okay? Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because we do not have the enzyme systems like a cow or herbivore to break down the mushrooms. And when I say break down, the medicinal aspects of the mushrooms are within the cells of the mushroom. Right? The mushroom is made up of a whole bunch of cells. Yes. Okay? And what we're interested in for medicinal aspects is the stuff that's inside the cells. Right. And I've learned a little. So it's chitin is the membrane. Is that right? No, chitin is, yeah, it's part of the, the membrane, right? Yeah, yeah. And we have a very hard time breaking down chitin. It's very difficult. Yes. Okay? And there's also things called polysaccharides, which are part of the cell wall of the mushroom, right? Again, we have a hard time extracting that out from the rest of the mushroom. There's a whole bunch of chemicals like sterols, triterpenoids, and that's a class of compounds, okay? And so polysaccharides is a class of compounds. All right. Now, when we talk about things like polysaccharides, there are many different types of polysaccharides. Things like starches are polysaccharides, and everybody probably would have heard of things like beta-glucans and alpha-glucans, etc. Mm-hmm. Those are, again, classes of compounds. They're not individual pure chemical compounds. Let me use an analogy. We all talk about fish oils, and we all know fish oils are called omega-3. Right? But we can also get omega-3 fatty acids coming from plants. So things like hemp, flax, right, also provide omega-3s. 
But the omega-3s that you get from the plant is very different from the omega-3s that you get from fish oil. So your EPAs, right, is usually like 20 carbon long. The one from the plant, the ALA, all right, alpha-linolenic acid, is 18 carbons long. So the body treats them very differently. It's the same thing with beta-glucans. People would have heard about beta-glucans. Yeah. And everybody's talking about my extract or my product has a lot of beta-glucan. But every beta-glucan is different. So beta-glucan you can get from oats. So the beta-glucans from oats is not the same as the beta-glucans that you can get from reishi mushroom or chaga mushrooms or any of the other mushrooms that everybody talks about. right? And they all do different things. So it's not enough to say, my mushroom has a lot of beta-glucans. What you have to say is, my mushroom has this amount of beta-glucans, and these beta-glucans are specific for using for cognitive health, for immune health, right, and so on. Now, the question that you ask is decoctions versus powders and capsules, right? right? Some people, what they do, they dry the mushroom out, they grind it up into a powder, and they stuff it into the capsule. Now... That is probably the worst way of taking a mushroom because it's equivalent to taking a mushroom and not even cooking it and eating it. Your body is not going to get much out of it because we do not have the enzyme system to break it down. The other way of doing it is you boil it, right? Mm -hmm. And when I say you boil it, it's not like making a tea where you boil it, you stick your tea bag in, count to 10, pull it out, and voila, you have a tea. The things that you want from mushroom requires much more time and effort and just sticking it into the hot water counter and pull it out. A hot water extract, you boil it for about seven, eight hours. And then you should be slicing those mushrooms up into powder form or thin slices to get as much of the active ingredient you can get out. The reason for the boiling is that the boiling process actually helps break down the cell walls and allows everything that's in the cell wall to come out. And it also allows whatever is inside the mushroom cells to come out into the liquid. This is how you get the most potent aspect. Now, there's another way that people have used to get some of these actives out. They use an alcohol extract, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the downsides of alcohol is that alcohol, the most studied aspect of mushrooms are the polysaccharides. So that includes your beta-glucans, alpha-glucans, etc. The problem with alcohol and polysaccharides is that alcohol causes these polysaccharides to denature, Right, And by that I mean, is you, if you ever had an egg, mm-hmm. you crack an egg, if you add alcohol to the egg, what you'll see is that the albumin, which is the egg white, would congeal and so on. That because it's denatured. Now, when we eat an egg, it's for food purposes. That is irrelevant whether it's denatured or not because our enzyme systems can break up denatured protein. On the other hand, when we take a polysaccharide that you get from mushroom, if it's denatured, it doesn't activate the cells, the immune cells, or the cognitive health, wherever it's supposed to work, it doesn't activate those cells well. So you get something that's decreased in potency. Doesn't the boiling process, the hot water extraction, also potentially denature the mushroom? Um, Yes and no, right? Because some of these compounds are very resistant to denaturing by heat. Okay. And you have to remember, way back in the day when people were first discovering mushrooms i mean we didn't discover mushrooms yesterday mushrooms have been around for donkey years okay yep. and the people who have been using mushrooms like things like the reishi mushrooms the lion's mane the tramites etc there's a whole bunch of work done folklore 
medicinal history done by the Chinese. And those boys know their mushrooms, okay? <laughs> yeah. But the thing with it is that way back in the day, the only way they had to do it was boiling it. And tried and true, they saw effects with the boiling process. So what that means is that the active ingredients are still there and they're still effective enough that there was enough effect that they could even write a treatise and say, this is good for this and this is good for that. So they were seeing the effects, right? Yeah. But one of the things that I want to point out is that if you take that same hot water extract and you dry it out, well, that drying out process can actually denature your polysaccharides or denature the compounds of interest. And if you denature your compound of interest, right, again, there's a huge loss of potency. Right. So that's where you run into issues of potency issues of, of drying out the mushrooms. So the best mushroom extract you can get are really the ones with a liquid, that's a liquid extract. Now, the downside to a liquid extract for most people is that, eh, I don't like the taste. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. But if you're doing it because you ha- you're trying to use mushrooms to be effective against an allergy, pinch your nose down the hatch or mix it with juice. Okay. Or mix it with, or pour it into your smoothie in the morning. Now, I know every morning you wake up, you probably have a, a fruit smoothie with some protein in it. This is a good way. Just add it to that and voila, you're good to go. Can you cook with it? Like, can you bring the heat up with the liquid or not? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can add it because the extraction process is with heat to start off with. Right. Okay. Right? Yeah. So you can add it to your food if you want. It'll just give you more, a more mushroomy flavor to your food. If you're making you can throw it in soups, etc. Soups is actually one of the better ways of dealing with mushrooms because I know when people make a soup, especially if you're doing some sort of a broth, they don't just throw the things in, count to 10 and take it out. Right. They just simmer it for a long time. Yeah, no, I was just thinking, you know, I make a mushroom pasta. You know, maybe that's a good way of, if the flavor is sort of funky, maybe that's a good way to hide it. Yeah, but the problem with that is that if you're just taking a mushroom, slicing it and pan frying it and throwing it in your pasta, right? Yeah. You're not going to get much of the medicinal. No, no, no. I'm talking about using the liquid in the broth. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, definitely. You could do that. Okay. Where do you want to go from here, Gordon? What do you want to talk about next? Oh, let's talk about the fruiting bodies versus the mycelium. So, Gordon, what is the fruiting body? Now, for the mushroom aficionados out there, especially in the medicinal mushroom world, everybody wants the fruiting body. The fruiting body is the stuff that you see above the substrate. So, for example, if I'm growing shiitake mushrooms, shiitake mushrooms are usually grown on pieces of wood. Right. Okay, on bark. So the shiitake mushroom, the fruiting body, is the part that everybody would eat. Right, so the cap, uh, right? Co- there's something called the mycelium. For want of a better way of thinking of this, I call it the analogy I'll use, is the, the mycelium is like the roots. Right, right? okay. Because what yep. the mushroom does is that it goes down and it grows into the substrate. So the substrate, in this case, of shiitake would be tree bark, and they will grow into it. Or in the case of shaga, they grow into the, the tree itself. Now, the part that we want is a part that's exposed to the air. That's a fruiting body, right? Uh, we don't tend to normally use the mycelium because it's very difficult to separate the mycelium from the substrate. So if you think of it, if you're eating, try to get mycelium, mm-hmm. you get bits and pieces of the tree bark. Yeah, not I good. mean, the mushroom is tough enough to extract all the active. Yeah. So if you get more tree bark than mushroom mycelium, you end up getting the tree bark, which is probably not what you want anyway because the tree bark itself probably doesn't have the medicinal value that you'd get from the fruiting body. Makes sense. We have uh, maybe a few minutes left. Do you want to talk about what the actual medicinal value of some of these mushrooms are? Well, yeah, we could touch a base on that. 
Why don't we do that? All right. So one of the things I was talk to people about, there's so many different types of mushroom out there, right? Uh, what are some of these things that people use mushrooms for? Right. So there are a lot of different mushrooms. People use it for all different things. If you want to say how much of this is folklore and how much of this is study, there's a lot of studies out there, published scientific articles that's out there. Right. So things like reishi mushrooms, for example, have been studied quite for a long time. And mm-hmm. one of the things that we know they do is boost the immune system. And what I do know, I have seen many studies where they talk about reishi, they talk about maitake, they talk about turkey tail, otherwise known as Coriolis versicolor. Right. These mushrooms have been used for things like treatment of cancer. Now, I don't want anybody who has cancer to go rush out and, and think this is the be-all and the end-all. Right. Okay? Yeah. This is definitely not the be-all and the end-all. There's a long way between some of the studies and actual treatment. But I do know in certain countries, some of these mushrooms have been blessed by their regulatory bodies for use in treatment of things like cancer. But every country is different. Every ruling body, regulating body looks at these things differently. Right. Some of these mushrooms, you know, like things like lion's mane, have been used for things like cognitive health. Right. Some mushrooms like cordyceps have been used to help with sexual dysfunction. Some cordyceps have also been useful in treatment of things like allergies, like seasonal allergies, food allergies, even allergies against, you know, pet dander, et cetera, et cetera. Excellent. So there's so many different reasons to use mushrooms. This is why mushrooms are now one of the hottest topics in the natural product world. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and explaining it. For more information about Gordon's company, visit omegaalpha.ca. For great health and wellness interviews and articles, visit thetonic.ca. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss how to beat high food costs and still eat healthy on The Tonic. Hi, this is Safina, and I'm a Walmart pharmacist. Whether you're looking for a medication review, diabetes screening, or have questions about your health, your local Walmart pharmacist is here to help. Find out more at walmart.ca slash pharmacy services. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? Powered by the Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy Program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait. Go today. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Shauna Lindzen is a dietitian and nutritionist. She's a program developer and nutrition leader at Wellspring Cancer Support Network and enjoys seeing clients virtually and doing corporate wellness lectures. She runs practical cooking demonstrations that combine scientific knowledge with culinary education. Her demonstrations are unique, informative, delicious, and a lot of fun. And you can find a list of her nutrition classes and recipes at shaunalindzen.com. Welcome back to the show, my friend. How are you? I'm great, Jamie. How are you? I'm good. You and I sometimes see each other shopping uh, because we're neighbors. And I don't know about you, a little bit of sticker shock when I go shopping. Absolutely. Have you seen the price of romaine lately? (laughs) I have. 
We could do a whole show on the price of romaine. <laughs> yes. But this was my clever segue, or was meant to be, into how do we eat nutritiously yet cope with these rising costs? So we have to somehow navigate it. And right. It's interesting because it's all over the news. Like we yeah. can see it ourselves, but right. the stats are there. Like in terms of food costs, I see stats like 8 to 10% increase, but when I'm actually in the store, it feels like double or triple on some of the items. So what you have to do if, if you are on a budget, it's extremely important to pay attention. So if you're at different grocery stores to do comparison shopping or even to do it on your phone to look at different apps and stuff. Okay, I get that. But like time is money too. I love doing the, the family shop for food and I do it, but I'm already shopping for food three days a week and I don't want to do it anymore because it's just, it's time consuming and I'm not going to race around to five different places. So my experience is sometimes there's weird food inflation. Like, so for example, sometimes cauliflowers are $6 a head and then a week later they're $3 a head. And I would just say like, if the number sticks out at you, then maybe you just pass that up for the week, unless like you really need to have cauliflower, for example, right? Exactly. And usually when it is high, it's probably not in season. Right. Right? So yeah. choosing seasonal produce, for instance, like we can look at a lot of different areas. We can look at the whole foods, like the produce section. Right. We can also look between the aisles, so the dry goods. And I feel when I actually just did a contract with Food Banks Canada, so I learned a lot about which foods are kind of the staple foods that don't go up in price exponentially like other foods. Okay, so which are they? So they're the basics. There are things like pasta, yep. rice, peanut butter, potatoes. So things like that are good to have as pantry staples. Right. And then you build upon that. So in my eyes, it's almost like going back to eating kind of going back to the basics, right? Like eating simply instead of very complex with lots of kind of gourmet ingredients. Not to say that we can't buy the gourmet ingredients, but it's really good to focus on having the staples in your pantry. Yeah, but like all those staples you mentioned, like they don't have a ton necessarily of nutritional value. I mean, you know that. I don't need to tell you that, right? Yeah. Like pasta, like I love pasta. Nobody loves pasta more than me, but it's what you put with the pasta that gets you the nutrition. The pasta itself isn't really getting so you So let's talk about that. So okay. when I actually was thinking about recipe development, I made up three recipes that were really cost effective that were delicious and didn't have a big price tag. So for instance, the first recipe I created was a spaghetti with canned fish, like you could put yep. any sort of like tuna or salmon or and or, because I actually tried it with both, canned lentils. So that's your protein. So when you're when you're thinking about foods to buy and meals to prep, you always want to think of the balance, right? The starch, the protein, the vegetable. And interestingly enough, frozen vegetables versus fresh vegetables versus canned vegetables, there's a place for all of those. Agreed. Yep. Yeah. So other recipes, like I think about are, for instance, fried rice. 
Yep. So if you have your rice, yes, it's not the most nutrient-dense food, but you can add things like eggs, which are typically you can get pretty inexpensive, frozen vegetables, and like soy sauce, for instance. And so so we literally made that for dinner last night, and I'm having it for lunch today. So it was brown rice Love it. that you cook cold, and we mixed it with Brussels sprouts. So you could, like you could have it with cabbage to fill it out, and there's tons of nutritional value in that. We used a small smattering of bacon, right? So like you just a little for the umami. The flavor. Yeah, yeah. and then uh, we put in some goji jing, Korean pepper paste. Hot chili paste. Yeah. yeah, and you poach some eggs or fry some eggs quickly and put it on top, and that is a very filling meal that really does not cost a lot. It doesn't cost a lot, and there you go. So because you're a home cook and you think often about what recipes can I make from my pantry, like without a recipe, you know, from your head, that's an excellent, excellent example. So you can do that with any cuisine. Like you can do an Italian spin on that. Sure. Like put a little bit of tomato sauce or that type of thing in. So if you stock your pantry well... When you see things on sale, if you're only going to yeah. one grocery store, it really does work. Well, we were talking a moment ago about canned fish with pasta. We actually started having it's we went to Sicily this summer and we've been having pasta with sardines and anchovies with fennel raisins and pine nuts. Now, pine nuts are a bit pricey, but you don't need a lot of them. But everything mm-hmm. else is really inexpensive. And it is. it sounds weird, but it's actually a super delicious pasta. It sounds delicious because you've got all the flavor notes in there. And if on the note of the pine nuts, yes, they're always expensive, right? Now yeah. they're even you know more expensive than they've ever been. But I find a really good substitution would be a pumpkin seed, mm-hmm. which is a fraction of the cost. Or if you want like a smaller seed, like a hemp seed to add a bit of protein. You just need something toasty in flavor. Like I sometimes would swap that out with some toasted breadcrumbs, like get some panko and just toast it up. And that kind of gives you that the same kind of, not the the mouthfeel, but yeah, exactly. Anything that you can give the crisp, like you can put that with a little bit of butter and salt and that can really bring you a long way like the butter and salt. And speaking about like adding different proteins, I love to take an inexpensive protein like a green lentil and take it out of the can, rinse it and toast it in the oven to make that a textural component. Oh, interesting. I know you'll like this. You could even do capers with that, like lentils and capers. And that gives kind of a salty, briny note as well with maybe a little bit of red wine vinegar. Mm -hmm. So there are so many ideas. You just have to open your mind to new flavors and make sure that you have the basics in your pantry. I'm finding legumes, like you mentioned lentils, but I'm finding legumes across the board. There may be some increase, but it's not like the other foodstuffs, like dairy has just gone through the roof. But I like, agree, yes. So like we eat a lot more beans than we used to, that's for sure. And greens don't seem to be going up that much either. So Except for the romaine. <laughs> yeah, but like romaine, like only when I'm doing like bacon and egg salad. So yeah, like, or Caesar salad. But you, you can still get like a bunch of kale for $3 or spinach is really, really inexpensive too. Spinach is good. Yeah, it is kind of interesting. But what I like about, as you mentioned, the lentils, you can get them dried, canned, sometimes frozen. Yeah. So there are so many different ways you can get them and people don't realize that. So I'm a really big advocate for increasing the plant-based protein 
and it goes along with an inexpensive price tag. Okay. What other tips do you have? I have a lot of tips. Okay. So, <laughs> so one of my biggest tips is, and I know we've been doing a lot about this, is eating at home and preparing your own meals instead of, you know, buying food from a restaurant or, you know, yep. ha- having the restaurant as a once in a while thing or takeout because there are always associated costs, extra costs with that if you're trying to save money, you know, like delivery costs and that type of thing. Mm -hmm. While you're at the grocery level, in order to save money, as we always say, make a list before you go. Yes. When you're looking at the shelf, look up and look down. Don't always look in the middle because the products in the middle usually are the more expensive products. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, like they get like prime shelving. Oh, oh, they're paying for the shelving, therefore there's a premium. They're paying for the shelving. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So look up and look down. And I find always the best tip is buy a larger amount and freeze some, like even flowers, nuts, seeds. Typically, it is a lot less expensive, especially if you're a member of like a big box store like Costco or Sam's Club, that kind of thing. I would say like make more and then just be committed to eating leftovers because that's a good, that's a good way of saving costs, right? Like, so for example, the rice we had last night, I'm having for lunch today, right? And I thought you were actually going to say make more and eat a little less. No, I, I, thought, I can't Jamie, do that. No, I can't that's do good portion control. Yeah, no, no, no. That's not in my wheelhouse. But yes, that, 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 that is a good tip. But I like to say I live by that, but I actually don't. I'm a big portion boy. So. It's funny because I thought, hmm, Jamie. <laughs> no, no, we're not there yet. I'm, yeah. still, I'm still a work in progress, Shauna. <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of batch cooking, it's yeah. brilliant to make a big stew, a big soup, yeah. as you say, the rice. And freeze it in portions that you would actually eat it. So instead of freezing it in a big clump, separate it into little, I like freezing in little glass containers. Agreed. Yeah, you could even do mason jars and put like three quarters of the way up, freeze it, and then put the lid on. So that will allow for expansion. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. What do you want to talk about next time you're on? Let's talk about holiday eating and traditional foods. Fantastic. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss obesity on The Tonic. Hi, this is Safina, and I'm a Walmart pharmacist. Whether you're looking for a medication review, diabetes screening, or have questions about your health, your local Walmart pharmacist is here to help. Find out more at walmart.ca slash pharmacy services. Medicinal mushrooms offer a multitude of health benefits, including immune support, improved energy, and stress reduction. Medicinal mushroom extracts from New Roots Herbal, hot water extracted, providing you validated potency so you get their full health benefits. Discover reishi, lion's mane, or resilience, a seven-mushroom blend. Find the complete selection of medicinal mushroom extracts from New Roots Herbal exclusively at quality health food stores. To learn more, visit newrootsherbal.com. To ensure the products are right for you, always read and follow the label. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Dr. Sean Wharton has a doctorate in pharmacy and medicine from the University of Toronto. He's the medical director of the Wharton Medical Clinic, a community-based internal medicine, weight management, and diabetes clinic. 
He's an adjunct professor at McMaster University in Hamilton and York University in Toronto. He's also academic staff at Women's College Hospital and clinical staff at Hamilton Health Services. Dr. Wharton's research focuses on bariatric medicine and type 2 diabetes. He's the co-lead author of the Canadian Obesity Guidelines and medical director of the Wharton Medical Clinic in Toronto. Earlier this month, researchers and clinicians gathered at Obesity Week, an international conference to review the latest developments in evidence-based obesity science and clinical research. Dr. Wharton attended the conference and is joining us today to share his expert insights on obesity science. Welcome to the show, doctor. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Thank you very much for having me here. Well, it's an interesting topic for me. We've never really discussed obesity in and of itself And you're new to the show, but my health journey was I used to weigh 242 pounds. And when I was 38 years old, I lost 52 pounds through diet and exercise and kind of turned my life around. So this is interesting to me. Wow. Well done. Well done. Thank you. I always like the gold stars that I get from the guests. (laughs) So there's been some compelling research surrounding obesity and racial disparities. Can you elaborate on this topic? Yeah, I think that's an interesting topic for me and for a lot of people, maybe one of the reasons why I got into the field. There's a lot of bias, stigma, and also discrimination in the field of weight management and also obesity medicine. And all, of course, with racial disparities, that is definitely there. So one of the major things that we look at is that there's a higher percentage of obesity and the complications from obesity in specific ethnic groups, in the indigenous, in black people. And the question is, is that biology or is it structural racism? Well, it turns out it's structural racism primarily. It's not a biological issue or problem. There are different ethnic variations in body composition, but those don't specifically account for the amount of morbidity and mortality, which is death and medical problems due to this condition. It's primarily due to structural racism. Are you referring in part to like food deserts and things like that? Correct. Things like food deserts, other issues which um, uh, surround things like the disparity in care. Can somebody get care? Can someone get access to a medication? Can someone get access to food that helps out to the education system, etc.? So it all is part of that. And with Indigenous populations in Canada, that's not a far stretch for anyone to understand that. So what you're talking about, was this research results that were discussed at the recent uh, symposium, or was this something that you've been tracking for a while? This is something we've been tracking for a while. There's a publication that we are, are doing on it now that we're, we're actually going to be, be publishing soon. But one of the things that came up at the Obesity Week conference was that we frequently have a number of, let's say, there are equations, adjustments to equations based on race. And that has turned out to not be valid. And really, we can do adjustments on certain medical equations based on ethnic background. But doing it just based on the color of somebody's skin doesn't really work out. And so because there's so many other different uh, genetic components that compose each person. So we need to look at each person on an individual basis versus looking at them in big racial groups, black, white, Asian. Instead, look at the person as an individual, calculate their weight, their BMI if you need to, or at least look at their comorbidities. What is their blood sugar? What is their blood pressure? What are their risk factors? What's their family history? That's actual medicine as opposed to racialized medicine. You mentioned BMI. 
And I have a love-hate relationship with BMI because I'm not convinced that it's like in and of itself, it's sort of an accurate measure of somebody's health when it comes to their weight. Would you agree or do you think it's a valid tool? I would agree completely. I do not think it's a valid tool for looking at a individual. BMIs can help us sometimes within specific ethnic groups. So if you're in an Asian country, Specifically, the BMI calculations or cutoffs should be a little bit different. So sure. when we're looking at, at BMI, BMI is just a number. The right. problem isn't the number. The problem is is the cutoffs. And the cutoffs were designed primarily for white European males. They weren't designed for women. They weren't designed for black people. They weren't designed for Asian people. They were designed for white European males. Therefore, those cutoffs do not apply to the majority of the world. And that's a problem. Okay, let's shift gears a bit and talk about obesity amongst our children, because it's a serious issue, isn't it? Yeah, yes. And we tend to primarily focus on obesity in adults, because that's where all the marketing is, and that's where all a lot of the research is. But we know that the real issue is that more and more of our children are facing weight that is going up and up, and that an obesity epidemic and pandemic is happening within our children. And we've had very, very little success in trying to manage children's weight. Is that because our children are generally less active, they're more programmed, they're on their devices? Do you think it's an activity issue or is it a food issue? Nothing to do with activity. The research has shown that it has nothing to do with activity. Interesting. It primarily has to do with the genetics of an individual and the fact that we're living in 2022 where the environment, which is primarily the food, environment, the engineered food, the hormones in the food, the availability of it, the fact that we have air conditioning, that we don't have to sweat, we don't have to warm ourselves up, we don't have to lose energy in any other way. We have a, a comfortable environment that increases weight. Now that's, that is for everybody, but that's for children also. So the genetics on top of that comfortable environment causes elevated weight and we have very little treatment for it. Hmm. Let's go to the other end of the spectrum and talk about older Canadians. How does obesity impact older Canadians with considerations like chronic disease comorbidities? Yeah. So before we go there, I just wanted to point out that at the Obesity Week, a very important article came out, probably the most important thing about the entire week. It's called Step Teens. It was showing that a medication can have an effect in adolescent children to decrease weight and get them into the normal weight range. That was big news, international news. It was in the New England Journal of Medicine. So it is the most important thing to come out of this, out of the last year in terms of obesity research. We finally have a tool where we can see children actually who are living with obesity, not just a little bit of weight, but significant weight. In fact, the kids in the trial were bigger than the adults in the parallel trial. Wow. They were actually bigger than the adults. So these weren't small children. These were children with a real disease state. And we finally got a treatment where we saw 16% decrease in weight in these children. And that's a big deal for a child who is going to be faced with a lot of problems, but now it doesn't have to be. Okay. I don't know how I feel about that. I mean, I suppose if nothing else works, medication is the answer, but I'm uncomfortable with medications, you know, particularly for kids in dealing with an issue like obesity, which seems to be sort of a lifestyle issue. I don't know. I know there's a genetic component to it, but when you get that big, I think there's more going on there. 
Yeah, I would agree there's a lot of family issues and social issues. Yeah. But when there's a genetic problem, of course, which, yeah, of course. which ended up coming first? Was it the social issues that came first that caused the obesity? Or was it the obesity and that as a result, it shows social challenges for that child were in a position where they were in so much trouble? And, um, of course, their ability to make a change with a genetic disease is not their fault. So you have to look at treatments for them. Okay. Do you want to talk about comorbidities in seniors? Yeah, I think that that's an important factor here. So we have the elderly populations at much higher risk of a number of comorbidities. And so comorbidities being type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, coronary artery disease. And obesity makes it even more challenging. As we get older, our metabolic rate goes down because our mitochondria, a little energy package in our cells, die every year. And as a result, it makes it harder and harder to keep weight off over the long term. What we've recognized is that older people tend to do better than younger people do in lifestyle modification studies. So eating better, moving more, they always do better than younger patients do, which is amazing. I'm talking older patients over 65 versus younger patients under 65. So your 45-year-old versus your 67-year-old. The 67-year-old will do better in terms of weight management. Why? Because they have more time, they have more capacity, they have more understanding of their own body. And we also know that the other interventions, which include cognitive behavioral therapy and medication, and even bariatric surgery if needed, can be used in older patients without any adverse effects, which is important. Okay, you just touched upon behavioral psychology. So this is our last question. What is the correlation between behavioral psychology and weight gain? It's significant, not necessarily always with weight gain, but with the ability to keep weight off over the long term. Which is the hard part. Yeah. Yeah. And the concepts here are that from a psychological standpoint, people have to understand things like self-love. So love is probably the most important word here. So understanding who loves you, who you love, and why do you wake up in the morning to try to be healthy? Are you trying to be a good grandparent? And also the recognition that you should love yourself before your weight goes down. So you're 350 pounds, love yourself today. You don't deserve love only when you get down in weight. You deserve love right now, and that will carry you to a better and healthier person. Well, that's great advice. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Absolutely. Thank you. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll talk about cookbook holiday gifts on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. In addition to being a lawyer, my next guest has been writing for Tonic Magazine for over eight years. And since 2015, she's written the very popular cookbook review column, My Wife, Naomi. Hey, sweetheart. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. So this is my favorite of our interviews of the year because it's like a summary of everything. It's all-encompassing. 
We're going to do a holiday cookbook gift guide. And this is your opportunity to sort of get everything out there. So what's new? What are the trends? Okay. Well, the trends that I saw were, first of all, still we're continuing on the simplified, easier, even if it's entertaining, because for a while there, there were no entertaining cookbooks. Nobody was entertaining, but we're back to entertaining family and friends. But everything, whether it's baking or cooking or, you know, entertaining, it's all simplified, easier, because everybody's a bit sick of cooking. At the same time, they don't necessarily want to lose some of the benefits of the cooking that they did over the pandemic. So that's one. Mm -hmm. Another one is plant-based eating, whether it's vegan, vegetarian, or even just a everything, an omnivore cookbook, I noticed that the section on vegetables and the sections on, you know, vegetarian cooking, you know, within the cookbook are much more prominent. So, you know, there are still barbecue cookbooks that say they're meat heavy, but for the most part, there's a lot of vegetable dishes and vegetable mains and focus on vegetables and plant-based eating that I think wasn't there five years ago. So I I really noticed that. Mm -hmm. Another thing that I noticed was an increased focus on the narrative, the stories behind the recipes. So people must be either wanting to tell their stories or thinking that people want to hear the stories. It may be talking about the pandemic and you know, how this book came to be or, you know, what they did during the pandemic. I saw a lot of family histories, you know, stories, say like an immigrant story about somebody's parents and how they came to North America and the writers, how they learned to cook and their mother's and grandmother's recipes. And that's all folded into the book. So if you're looking for just the recipes, you might not care about that. But clearly, I think people are looking to connect. And I think this may have something to do with social media and the feeling that you need to, that you know people that you don't actually know because you follow them on Instagram or you watch them on TikTok. And in fact, some of these people who are writing books have built a following on social media and that's how they got their book deal in the first place. But this, this sort of connection, the stories behind the recipes is something that I, I really noticed too. I, I hate it. Like I really, I really like, like not everybody has an interesting story to tell. And, you know, when you're searching for a recipe online and you have to scroll down endlessly, like if I just want to find out what temperature to like bake bacon at, I don't need a five page dissertation on like their feelings on bacon. Just tell me what to set the oven at. Sorry, I'm a pragmatist. If I, I don't use recipes, but if I do, I don't need the editorial, but whatever. Sorry. To each yeah, their no, own. To each their own. Exactly. That's just something that I notice and I, I feel people must want it or, you know, editors, you think about it, the publishers, the editors are publishing the books and thinking that that's what people want. So some people want it. No. It's not all people. To quote a family member of ours, there's no accounting for taste. So what are the highlights for you? Which are the ones that really wowed you? Okay, and this is always, it's always so hard to choose because there's so many. I would note that I wrote about some of these in the magazine, but they continue to come out. And in fact, some of them have come out, you know, even today and I may mention them, but I haven't seen them. So these are the ones that I want to talk about. First of all, baking. Evolutions in Bread is a new book by Ken Forkish, and he wrote this fundamental book previously, like about 10 years ago, which everybody is a go-to book, and I have. Yep. The issue with that book, even though the breads are great and I love them, is it's, it's a lot of detail and it's a lot of work. Very finicky. And yeah. Finicky, and so if you want to pay attention to it, your breads will be good, but it also uses a lot of 
flour, you know, in his sourdough recipes, the amount of flour that you have to use to feed the sourdough starter to make the bread, it's a lot. And then that always bugged me and clearly bugged other people too in terms of just waste if you're not running a bakery. And I also love the Dutch oven breads, the ones with the crusty loaves, but they are hard to slice if you're trying to make sandwiches. So this new book has more sandwich loaf breads and ones that the recipes are just a bit streamlined and easier to make. They take less time overall. They use less ingredients. You can make them in a bread pan or a Dutch oven. And I really like that, especially building on the old book. I still like the new book. I like both. And Mm -hmm. so that's really great. And I've been using that book a lot, probably more than anything else. Mm -hmm. What else? There's a new book, which I think is a really cool idea. And everybody that I talk to about it thinks it's a great idea called Small Batch Baking by this guy named Ed Kimber. He won the great the British baking show in its first season. Now he's published a bunch of cookbooks. So Everything is smaller batches because, you know, people say, well, I love to bake, but I live by myself or it's just the two of us and and I don't want to eat a whole cake or, you know, I'm going to eat all these cookies myself. The focus of this book is small batches, so six cookies or even just one cookie or six tarts or a small loaf. And you could say, well, why don't you just take a regular recipe and cut it in half? But it doesn't necessarily work that way, Mm -hmm. you know, with the eggs and everything. So this, it's easier to double this recipe if you want more than to cut a regular recipe in half in terms of the timing. And the recipes are really interesting. There's vegan cookies, but there's, you know, things with interesting flowers and interesting uh, combinations like sour cherry crumble with rye hazelnut topping or a cinnamon bun loaf cake. There's an emergency chocolate chip cookie, which just makes one. And I hear from our consultant out in Halifax who's been baking from this book on my behalf that the recipes are great. I wanted to mention her. Yeah. Okay. I will also just mention What's for Dessert by Claire Saffitz just came out. Also great previous book but kind of complicated and technique-heavy. This one is simpler and worth checking out. Yeah, so that's baking. So what's next? All right. I think those general cookbooks that you know help answer what's for dinner, well, even what do I want to make for breakfast, there's some good ones there too. So Bonnie Stern has come out with a new book. I wrote about this in the magazine called Don't Worry, Just Cook. And it's classic Bonnie Stern, but updated. Her recipes are always good reliable. She's um, local. Comprehensive. Yeah, she's local. She's from Toronto. So definitely check that out and check out my comments in the magazine. Another one, Melissa Clark, who has also written a number of cookbooks and writes for the New York Times. She's come out with Dinner in One. So it's everything is uh, one pan meals. You know, everything is one pan, one pot, Mm -hmm. you know, one sheet pan. And She also has really good, reliable recipes that are interesting, and I wrote about that one too, but wanted to mention that here. A new one that I didn't mention is Molly Yeh. You may have seen her on the Food Network. Terminally happy, yeah. Yes, yes. Very happy and very cutesy. And she came out with this book called Home is Where the Eggs Are. And I was a little skeptical because she's so cutesy, but Honestly, the recipes are interesting. This is perfect for millennials in your life. You know, she has her babies and her farm and her husband, and she eats sprinkles and does cute things, but she has both a Jewish and Chinese heritage and a Scandinavian husband, and her recipes cover all of that. 
That's bizarre. Okay, cool. Yeah, I mean they don't they don't mix them all together necessarily, but she's got you know yeah. lux and cream cheese, and then she's got but she's also has gravlax, and uh, she's got things called hot dish, which is midwestern things with tater tots. So it's a really mix of things. They're kind of practical, and you know you might actually find it useful. So I would definitely say to check that out as, as a good gift. Another one to mention, which has just come out today, is Smitten Kitchen Keepers. And you may know Smitten Kitchen and Deb Perlman. She's got millions of followers on Instagram. She's got a new cookbook out. It's sure to be a big hit mm-hmm. and worth looking at. The other thing I would just mention is, again, if you're, if you're not traveling and you're thinking, you're wishing that you did travel or you could travel, there are some good books to check out. There's the Via Carrada cookbook, yep. which is an amazing restaurant in New York in Greenwich Village, which I loved. I went to in 2019, pre-pandemic, and they've come out with a cookbook, and it's very classic Italian. They've got their famous salad, got lasagna, cacio e pepe, so like a white lasagna with cheese. They're roasted peaches with amaretto and mascarpone, which I ate when I was there. All so good. And the recipes are simple in philosophy. I'm not sure they're actually simple, but if you, you know, if you've been there or you love Italian food, I would say you should look at that one. Mm-hmm. I also noticed a couple, one called First Generation, which is Taiwanese cooking and another one korean american which is korean cooking both of those immigrant story cookbooks you've got the chefs who talk about their history coming to america you know their parents learning to you know learning to eat north american food but still maintain the food they grew up with and the recipes are all very adaptable for you know you know the ingredients that are available for us if you if you're interested in that style of cooking that would be those two books would be something to check out as well. Okay. Last area, where do you want to go? I would just say there's a couple interesting little different cookbooks. One called Modern Classic Cocktails by Robert Simonson. He talks about all these, the um, genesis of all these famous cocktails that came out in the last 20 years and gives you the recipes for them. And so if, if you're interested in both the recipes and, again, the stories about the person who created them, it's kind of interesting. If you think about, like, the corpse reviver, the espresso martini that was terrible, but now it's back again, and apparently it's good. Mm-hmm. The paper plane that paper you Paper plane, love, that's my favorite. You know, yep. There's a little book, but if you like, for the bartender in your life, uh, yep. amateur or otherwise, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I looked over this book, and I actually thought it was quite good, and I do like my drinks. So, yes, it's got my seal of approval for what it's worth. It is worth something to me, for okay. sure. Thank you, dear. <laughs> One last book. I would say for the amateur barista, I got this book called How to Make the Best Coffee at Home by James Hoffman. And it's this little book that talks about you know, the temperature of the water, the coffee itself, the grind, the vessel. And so if you're kind of a coffee geek who wants to figure out how to make the best coffee, you can check out this book. He also apparently has a number of YouTube videos where he talks about this. And so it's it's interesting if you're interested in coffee. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Dr. Gordon Chang, Shauna Lindzen, Dr. Sean Wharton, and Naomi Bussin. 
And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine. The November-December issue is available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our new website, thetonic.ca. If you are interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.